0: This evening we're embarking on the third and final big section of Mark's Gospel. In the first seven and a half-ish chapters, Mark dealt with the question of Jesus' identity. Who was he? Who did he claim to be? We saw that for Mark, Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, God's Saviour and God's Judge. And then... In the middle section, from 826 ish through to the end of chapter 10, we saw Jesus begin to teach his disciples and followers what it was he had come to do. He was going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, and then to rise again. And that middle section was characterized by misunderstanding. Jesus spoke clearly, the disciples didn't understand. And reacted inappropriately. And we saw that cycle three times over in that section. But now we're in the last section. They approached Jerusalem. Now everything in the last two and a half chapters has been pointing towards Jerusalem. There's been a lot of build up. And now Jesus is entering into the city. We're about to see the accomplishment of Jesus' mission. We're about to see the final confirmation of his identity, and it will all happen in Jerusalem. This is uh, the passage which is traditionally referred to as Jesus' triumphal entry. It has some claim to that. I'll ask some questions about how appropriate that title is later. But to get us into this passage, to get us into these, these uh, 11 verses, I have just two points, and then I want us to take a step back and think, big picture, what is going on here? What is this passage all about? <coughs> so, two two points. They're not alliterative, but they are clever in other literary ways, as you will see shortly. The, uh, the first point is the claim of Jesus. I don't know if you noticed, you may not have done, Mark devotes quite a long time for Mark to a description of the disciples going out and finding a donkey. Now, Mark is not a wordy gospel. He races through the story bang, 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 bang. So when you get These little interludes where you have a description of Jesus telling the disciples what to do, where to go, how to find a donkey, what to say when they're questioned. And then you get a supplementary description of them going, finding a donkey, being questioned and answering as they've been told. That's not just Mark waffling on a bit. He doesn't really do that. He's making a point. Why such a detailed account of getting the colt in the first place? Our minds, I think, jump ahead to the exciting bits with palm branches and the cloaks on the road and Jesus being acclaimed as the Christ as he enters Jerusalem. But why this lengthy, for Mark, bit about getting hold of the donkey in the first place? I think Mark is is, uh, making a couple of points Firstly, he is saying Jesus is in control of this process. Some commentators have speculated that perhaps Jesus had made a prior arrangement with somebody to get hold of this donkey. And so all he had to do was give the disciples the sort of password, if you like, and the people would say "Ah, yes, that's for Jesus, we remember. He came in and said he wanted a donkey a few weeks back. I don't think actually that's what's going on here. It seems to me that Mark is trying to show that Jesus has complete knowledge of what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem, down to the very details of how to get hold of a donkey. He's in control of the whole process. His deliberate choice. That's going to be hugely important as we go forward. Because we know that Jesus is going to the cross. He is going to suffer and die. And we need to know he is in control of that. Otherwise, the end of Mark's gospel is not going to be gospel, good news, at all. It's just going to be everything going off the rails and Jesus being killed. It's only if Jesus is in control, if he knows what he is doing and what he is going to, that this is good news. So there's control. But I think more than that, Jesus, Mark is saying, is deliberately making a point. Getting hold of a donkey, of a colt, to ride into Jerusalem is a hugely symbolic action. We call it the triumphal entry. And uh, the triumph part of that comes from a Roman ceremony where A general who had won a great victory, or usually several great victories, would be granted the right to parade through the streets of Rome. And that parade was a triumph. They were celebrating a triumph. I don't think that has much to do with the story. If you were a Roman onlooker, you might have thought that this was some bizarre parody of a triumph. But Mark isn't, or Jesus isn't, doing this primarily for a Roman audience. He's doing it for a Jewish audience. And for a Jewish audience, riding into Jerusalem on a colt has a completely different resonance. If you were to click back to Zechariah chapter 9, and it might be helpful for you to do so, page 955 if you've got a church Bible. Matthew and John, in their accounts of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, actually quote this passage. Mark is content to just allude to it, but it is still huge in the background of what is going on here. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. The immediate context of that verse is all about the future prosperity of Jerusalem. So look back to chapter 8, verse 14. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty... So now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. It's part of a prophecy that Judah has a future. Judah will be blessed again by God. second part of the context is the destruction of God's enemies. So the first part of chapter 9 is all about the routing of the Syrians, the Philistines, all of Israel's ancestral foes. God will bring peace through the defeat of his enemies and the blessing of Jerusalem. Perhaps uh, even more, chapter 9, verse 13. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim, I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. The context is about God's victory. And it wouldn't be that difficult to slide over, in a Jewish mindset in the first century, from Greece to Rome. God is going to come to defeat the enemies of his people and restore Jerusalem to glory. That is the symbolic action that Jesus picks up when he chooses to ride into Jerusalem on a colt. That is what this means to the Jewish audience who are waiting there for him. See, it's a huge claim that he is making. He is deliberately choosing to enter Jerusalem in this way, And in so doing, he is saying, I am doing it now. All that stuff, the blessing of Jerusalem, the defeat of God's enemies, I am doing it now. Here comes Jerusalem's king, humble, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's an awesome claim to make. It's no less than Jesus saying, I am the Messiah. Now, if you've been following through Mark, and I hope that some of you have because you've been here most weeks for the last nine months or so when I've been looking at Mark, you'll know that... Actually, it's longer than that, isn't it? Gosh. Anyway, uh, anyway uh, short on that. Okay. Uh, one I was going to make is, <laughs> Jesus in Mark has not been very forthright about his identity. You'll remember, lots of healing stories have ended with Jesus saying, don't tell anybody about this. Keep it a secret. The disciples who view the transfigured Christ on the mountain are told as he comes down, don't say anything about this until after I rise from the dead. Being simple sorts, they wonder what that could possibly mean. But Jesus has been keeping his identity somewhat under wraps throughout Mark. He's been turning away from popular acclaim, turning away from popular ideas of what the Messiah might do. But now, as he comes to Jerusalem, he nails his colours firmly to the mast. By riding in on a donkey, he is saying, Yes, I am, unambiguously, the king of Israel. I am the Messiah. It's a huge claim to make. But that is what Jesus is doing in this passage. Well, there's my first one. Secondly, the acclaim of the crowd. See what I've done there? Because it's like but with act on it. <laughs> the shouts of the crowd. Jesus is surrounded by people rejoicing, delighted to see him arrive in Jerusalem. They cover the road with their clothes. It's like a red carpet. They wave branches. They shout and sing. And here are the things that they shout. They shout, Hosanna. Hosanna is a, a funny word, because as far as we know, in the Old Testament, the, the, the word is derived from always is a cry for help. God save, it means, save us. But here, it sounds like a cry of praise. It sounds like they are recognising, here is salvation. God save us now, here, by this man riding in on this donkey. They're recognising that a saviour has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is God's appointed deliverer. They recognize him not as somebody who has taken this idea into his head that he might try being the Messiah, but as somebody who is God's representative. He comes in the name of the Lord. He comes as the one who acts on God's behalf for God's people. That's what they're saying about him. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They're saying, this king will fulfill all the ancient prophecies. David had been told that a son from his body would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And yet, there had been no king from the line of David for centuries. They're saying, That time is over. The wilderness time is over. The barren time is over. David's son has come. The kingdom of David lies ahead of us, not just in the glorious past. We don't just look back on the time when David, that legendary almost second king of Israel, ruled and there was peace and prosperity. We look forward to a return of those days. David's kingdom is coming. What they are saying, what the crowd are saying, is explicitly messianic. They are recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. He is God's king. He is God's savior. He's the one we've been waiting for. This is a real high point. In fact, it is the climax of the history of Israel. All this time, Israel has been waiting for God to come by his saviour and rescue them. And now this crowd, recognising this man on a donkey riding in through the gate, says, The time has come. The time has come. The prophecies are being fulfilled. Our history is coming to its glorious close. Here is the Messiah, God's anointed one. The acclaim of the crowd matches the claim that Jesus is making. It's not that he puts out there that he's the Messiah. And popular opinion is unfortunately against him. The crowd are on his side. They recognize the truth of the claim that he makes. Yes, this is the one. It's not just a high point in the history of Israel. It's a high point in Mark's Gospel. In some ways... It's like that bit in chapter 8, where Jesus asks the disciples, Who do you say I am? And Peter replies, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. In the same way that the disciples then responded to Jesus' question, by identifying him as God's anointed, here the crowd identify him as God's anointed, They endorse the claim he makes. So that's all straightforward then, isn't it? Jesus said he was the Messiah. The crowd agreed that he was the Messiah. There was much celebration. The equation balances. Everybody's happy. Except... We know that it isn't going to turn out that way. We know that this isn't the end of the story. So we look back over Mark, chapters 8 through 10 in particular. It wouldn't surprise us if underneath all these fine-sounding words from the crowd, there was a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion, about who Jesus is, and about what he has come to do. I wonder if that oddly anticlimactic ending to this passage in verse 11 is a little hint that this crowd is going to be disappointed. Did, Did that strike you as odd as we read it? Huge, festal procession into Jerusalem. Everybody celebrates. Here is the king, here is the son of David, here is the Messiah. But it was getting late. So after he'd looked around a bit, Jesus went back out to his lodgings. world unchanged. Jerusalem still occupied. Heaven not come to earth. I just wonder whether Mark is saying they were going to be disappointed, these people. What the crowd are expecting, what the crowd want from their Messiah, doesn't happen. (laughs) We don't know the relationship between this crowd Who shouted, Hosanna, and the crowd a little bit later who shouted, Crucify Him. Probably they weren't the same people. But certainly this crowd didn't show up in Jesus' defense. Even his closest disciples abandoned him and fled. Here's the thing. This isn't Jesus' triumphal entry. This isn't where Jesus' triumph happens. Jesus' triumph will happen a few days later when he hangs on a cross and dies. According to Mark, that is what the Messiah came to do. To give his life as a ransom for many. That is what Jesus is about. And that was something that the excited crowds who loved to see their king coming in were never going to go for. They didn't understand what he had come to do. And so this is climax of the history of Israel in two ways. The climax because here finally their Messiah comes and they recognise him as the Messiah. But also sadly the climax of that history of rebellion and misunderstanding of God which spreads through the Old Testament and which is going to lead to the cross. What is this passage saying to us today? I think a few things. Most centrally, it's telling us about Jesus. They're not wrong, this crowd of people who hail him, who look forward to the coming of David's kingdom. They're not wrong. He is the Messiah. It's right that they recognize him and worship him and call out praise. It's right that they look to him as a savior. It wouldn't hurt us to have some of their excitement, given that we know much more about who he is and what he has come to do. I'm quite pro processions. Shall we have some processions? (laughs) Doesn't quite find a place in our church tradition, but maybe we can find some other way to express the joy of seeing the coming King. I guess the flip side, if Mark is showing us not only who Jesus is and the way that Jesus had to go, but also the way that Jesus' followers have to go, then this passage has something to teach us as disciples, as followers of Jesus. There will be times in our Christian lives where we're frankly on a high. There will be those moments when it seems triumphant and everything is going brilliantly. I just think this passage says... Enjoy that, but put a question mark against it. You can't live from that. Because that isn't where the real triumph is. Not for Jesus and not for you. The real triumph for you is when you put yourself to death in order to serve others. The real triumph for you is when you take up your cross on a daily basis to fight against sin and to seek to love the world for which Jesus died. And the real triumph may well come at the low points and the hard points, and not at the points that are full of celebration and triumph. See, the reality of the crowd's lack of understanding is soon going to be revealed. Let's not be those who make that same mistake, who look for the excitement but don't understand the cross? The hard thing, I guess, is that this seems so logical. If He is the Messiah, great! The kingdom's come, everything will be set right. Just like in Zechariah, God's enemies will be judged. The Romans will be kicked out. Israel will be restored. There will be prosperity and peace for Jerusalem. Makes sense, right? It's logical. And so we say if the gospel is true, if Jesus is king, then why isn't the church triumphant? Why isn't the world acknowledging him. Why am I not less sinful and more full of the joy of the gospel? Logic isn't going to help us here. We need to go to the cross and see that it was at the cross that Jesus won victory through hardship and suffering and death. And it will be through hardship that we will win victory as well as we follow him. Let's pray that he would help us to follow him this week. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus, who, though he was your king, your anointed one was willing to suffer and die for us. We thank you for him in his glory, and we thank you for him in his humility. And we pray that as we seek to follow him, you would give us grace. Grace to enjoy the highs and the celebrations. Grace to endure through the hardships. Looking to Jesus, who has gone ahead of us. Because we pray in his name. Amen.